podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. It's no secret that Ian and I are, we're radio enthusiasts. Let's just say it that way. We like to listen to podcasts. We grew up on radio. That's why we're here. Let me go off script here, Ian, and ask you, what have you been listening to lately? What's on your playlist? Lately, I've been listening to a lot of the guests that we have on our podcast on other podcasts. And that's been kind of cool because you get to know them a little bit. That's one of the cool things about radio is it feels like you know that person, like they're talking to you. You're trying to up your interview game a little bit, sounds like. Well, not only that. No, I'm just, it's a, it's a fast way for me to learn about somebody. I won't reveal today's guest yet, but let's just say that you're listening to some of his episodes on other podcasts. How's that going to change the way that your discussion with them goes? Maybe I'll learn about things that they're interested in that I haven't read about. So a lot of times, like, we'll do a brief, or Jane will do a brief, our producer, on the person that we're going to have on the show. And a lot of times, it'll link to articles, and sometimes it'll link to podcasts. And I just find that it's it's much more comprehensive learning about somebody when they're on a radio show. Than reading about them. Yeah. Because you feel their vibe. Reading about them, it always feels filtered. When I'm listening to them, I feel like I get to know who they are, the things that really excite them through the inflection in their voice, things like that. Speaking of how to interview people, I think one of the best in the business is Bill Simmons. His show I've been listening to a lot lately. He had a recent interview with Kevin Durant, one of the best players in the NBA. And he was just so forthcoming for an athlete. Because you know how athletes are? They're so bombarded. They're often like, I'd like to thank God. I'd like to thank God. Confidence is key. We played together as a team and we've toughed it out for the win. <laughs> but Kevin like really opened up to Bill. And I think part of the trick that he's good at is like you have all these things that you're curious about, but really it's about figuring out what your guest is interested in. And often what your guest is interested in isn't maybe what everybody would initially want to ask him about, you know? Everyone wants to ask him about, you know, the latest scandal or whatever. And if you ask that as a question, like your interview, he's just going to be like, here we go again, you know? Essentially, I think what you're saying and what Bill does is he builds trust by speaking to them about their interests. There's always that one issue, like, are you going to ask him about X or whatever? And he'll often like build trust over the course of interview. And he's like, I'm not even going to ask you about X because, and he'll say something like close to it, but not exactly that question. And eventually that person is ready to talk about it at that point. A Bill Simmons trick. You come in through the side door. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back on task here. We got an interesting podcast for people who love radio and podcasting today. We are personally interested in learning how others have grown successful businesses through putting their voices on the air and developing podcasts. And one of those people is today's guest, Jordan Harbinger, who, with his co-host AJ, presents a show called The Art of Charm. Here's a clip from the show where Jordan is talking with Tony Hawk, the professional skateboarder and owner of the skateboard company Birdhouse. You mentioned in the book, the more you make it in the corporate world, the more you need to prioritize spending time on the street. How did you learn that lesson and how do you balance that now? I, I walk the walk. I, I go skate. <laughs> I mean, that that's my best that, that's my best explanation is that I'm still out there skating. I'm watching the events. I'm I'm hanging out with with you know, with the kids, with the ones that are that are considered the the contemporaries now and 
Um, and as long as I have my, you know, I do it because I love it, but as long as I have my finger on the pulse of, of what is happening out there, I can at least adjust my, my products and my career to, to fit into that or, or, or to be, to evolve with that, not to fit into it, but really to, to be progressive as well. Cause I don't want to get stuck in a rut. So Dan, Jordan's business that he owns centers around teaching men how to connect and communicate effectively in both their personal and business lives. Is that something you could use? I think, yes, that's that's a resounding yes. I could definitely use some help. (laughs) As well, the podcast and their online material at The Art of Charm, they also run seminars, in-person events. So all this has grown from Jordan's very first podcast, the Pickup Podcast, which he started back in 2005, which I think the name pretty much gives it away. They were offering dating advice. Yeah, I remember that. They were one of the first podcasts, and at the beginning of every episode, they'd say, download their toolkit. You remember that? Yep. It was really effective. It was like, you know, when iTunes had just a handful of podcasts, they were one of them. And he's going to tell that story. He began the show while he was working as a lawyer in New York. From there, both he and AJ went on to have successful careers at the satellite station Sirius XM before creating The Art of Charm. So I started my conversation with Jordan by asking him about that moment. Often on the show, Dan, we talk about that Saturday morning side hustle, and it turns out that Jordan has his very own Friday evening version of that. Luckily, the show was on Friday evening, and all the guys at my firm kind of knew what I was up to, so they didn't really mind. I mean, there were partners, and definitely the people in HR would not have been happy, but I got my work done, and it really did make sense for me to leave at you know 7 p.m. on a Friday most days. Other times, I'd kind of sneak out early, and they'd go, where are you going? We have all this work to do, and I'd go, look, I'll be back at 11. And they're like, all right, cool. Or look, I'll come in on Saturday. And all right, fine, you know, whatever. And so they kind of covered for me and the other guys in the office kind of covered for me because they're listening to the show in the office. And it's only a miracle that a partner didn't walk in and go, that guy sounds really familiar. Also, where's Jordan, <laughs> right? They just, everybody was doing their own thing. So they'd be listening. They would call in. They would prank call the show. They'd call in with real problems. It was really funny because if you're sitting in a basement or even in a 42nd story Manhattan office building doing document review, you're not under a whole great deal of supervision and you are bored to tears. I mean, you're looking for freaking commas or some kind of clause in a lease and you've got 185 leases that you need to look over. You know, you're skimming that. That's what you're doing as a first or second year associate on Wall Street a lot of the times. There was a time at which I was running downstairs from my office in Midtown Manhattan trying to look like I was running out to get a late dinner or something like that or trying to run out and grab a quick cup of coffee, running oftentimes literally to Times Square from Midtown Manhattan, going up the elevator in like my lawyer suit and work clothes, going up and doing a live call-in radio show where people are listening in the US, Canada, and online, and then running back to the office and going, yeah, I just wanted to go home and just freshen up real quick because I lived theoretically close enough to go do that. And I'd be doing document review for the rest of the evening. It was kind of ridiculous. So did you have any experience in broadcast and how did you cut a deal with, I guess at the time, was it Sirius or XM? How did you cut a deal with them? And why did they think that it was a good idea that you had a show to talk about these types of things? What happened was a friend of ours who wrote this book, it wasn't The Art of Manliness, but it was some sort of adjacent book. He had gotten 
the offer to go and be a guest on Maxim Radio, but he lived in Virginia, and they offered him his own show. Well, he, first of all, he brought us with him to go see the studio, so they kind of let us sit in on the show and talk and joke around, which is really cool, and then they said, oh, you should have your own show, and he said, I live in Virginia. I'm not driving up to New York once a week to do a show for two hours. Don't be ridiculous. And he said, you should give these guys a show. And they said, yeah, that's not quite how job offers work, right? We don't just like, you don't want it. You don't just hand it to your friend. And so they said, but these guys do seem interesting. Why don't you guest next week on the same show on Maxim Radio? So we were on the show. His name escapes me now. And we showed up and we did a show and the station manager and the other talent acquisition people happened to be air checking that show, which means like, let's see how they're doing and let's see what this topic is. And they came down and they were like, you guys are doing really well. You guys are kind of naturally good at this. And I said, well, we're not naturally good at it. We've been broadcasting in a basement for six months to a year. Here's a little cheap business card thing that says the URL on it, theartofcharm.com. And we thought that's the last we'll hear of it. But I got their email address, the station manager, and I followed up a couple weeks later thinking this is probably a huge waste of time. But in the off chance that you listen to anything that I had to show, what did you think? What's the feedback? And he wrote back and goes, I've been listening to your podcast nonstop. Do you guys want your own show on satellite radio? You guys could totally kill it. We just need to coach you on how to do with live callers and present more and be a little bit more zany like FM guy instead of measured podcaster like I naturally am. So I showed up and we started doing the show, me and AJ, and we did the show for three and a half years and it was a big success on both Maxim Radio, later became like Stars or something like that. And I think now it's indie. It's hard to keep track because they keep merging with, at that point they merged with Sirius and XM together. So we ended up with a lot of different brands there, but we basically learned on the job. They just thought this content is so interesting that these guys can be amateur broadcasters one year in or a year and a half in or whatever we were at the time, and it won't matter. It won't matter as long as they have an experienced producer who's kind of making the show move along, and that's what they gave us. So at this point, are you jockeying between Sirius XM Radio and podcasting, or have you just switched over to the traditional broadcasting? They asked us, they said, well, you know, you don't really need to do your podcast anymore because you have the show and you don't want to have to do duplicate content. And we said, "Mm, why don't we keep the podcast going? Maybe we'll do one every two weeks or something instead of every week because we got this other show. But I'm not really sure we want to stop podcasting because we have a lot of freedom. It's kind of a different format. People can download it. And at that point in time, Sirius XM wouldn't even let me show my iPhone in the video because they thought like podcasts are the competition. This is the enemy. Downloadable digital media is bad. We want to ignore it. It was just this really sort of entrenched industry lashing out against something they thought was a passing phase, which obviously they were so wrong. And we saw that. We saw that writing on the wall. And we kind of thought, look, if you're not actually going to even acknowledge that this thing that we did to get here is working, then you guys don't get it. So we kind of kept the show going and they said, well, okay, if you do that, you can't do the same content. So we just basically carved it out in our contract. And that was great because when we eventually left Sirius XM three and a half plus years later, we just had this massive podcast audience and we were like, okay, yeah, fine. We'll just do this instead. And now we're at 3 million monthly downloads. And I think any show on Sirius XM would probably cut off an appendage to get that much traffic. And not that there's anything wrong with satellite radio and there's shows on there that are huge, but everything else on there is kind of like throwing a podcast in iTunes. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows about it. It's got a couple thousand people listening at any given time because there are people on the road in trucks listening to that radio, right? It's kind of old modded. So it was a weird setup for us. Do you attribute part of your audience, at least maybe not a large percentage of it, but do you think that that audience that you got from doing traditional broadcasting carried over to podcasting? Did it help it? 
No, we barely had any crossover because the people who had satellite radio were this unique mix of like truckers, boaters, people who worked in northern Canada and didn't get regular radio stations. So they were working on like mines and oil and tar sands. And so you had this really cool demographic that was almost in many ways the complete opposite of the demographic listening to podcasts in 2008, 2009, 2010, because the people listening to podcasts then were like, 20-something white males in the IT industry because nobody knew how to get the damn things. Right. It was impossible. It was hard. It's still pretty hard. (laughs) Yeah, it's still unnecessarily difficult. But even then, you had to go to iTunes, which not everybody had. Nobody had a smartphone because they had just come out like a year prior. So that was early adopter quite a bit. And I'm not even sure you could get podcasts on your smartphone at that point. I think you had to sync iTunes to the phone and copy the manual. I can't remember. It's been so long. But you had that. There were no other podcast apps. There was no such thing as Android. I mean, there was no such thing as the iPad. So people had to listen in iTunes on their computer. That was the only way to listen. Imagine how small that demographic is. And then in addition to that, you're still competing with like, oh, ESPN has a show on here. Oh, this other famous person, yeah, their stuff's uploaded digitally. So they were dominating the top of iTunes. So the only people who are listening to The Art of Charm in iTunes at that point is probably a few hundred or a few thousand people from Sirius XM. But most of it was just like guys and girls who had put in a weird set of search terms during the very, very early Wild West days of iTunes, where you didn't even have cover art in iTunes. It was just a text listing of shows and music. And that's what you had. And the discoverability was even worse than it is now, which is saying a lot. Yeah. And it's not great now. So back in the day, were you guys actually making full-time livings or were you making a decent salary from XM? No, we were making a full-time living because of coaching and clients that were coming to live with us during our residential programs, which is what we still do now in the school in LA, but we had at the time in New York. Oh, interesting. So you were doing the same programs or similar programs that you were doing now. Was XM trying to take a cut of that or was that your business? No, they didn't care at all. It wasn't even like, oh, they didn't know. It was they just didn't care. The fact that we had a business outside the show, they just could not have cared less. And you're promoting that business on XM? Every single day. Wow. Yes. I know. Talk about that. I, that. Talk about a good deal. That's incredible. The pay was, let's just say, virtually non-existent. However, the fact that we were able to go on primetime evening drive in LA satellite radio, you know, we'd have Brett Michaels in studio and here we are talking about our programs. Yeah, that's what kept us alive for a little while. This week's podcast is brought to you by the members of the Dynamite Circle. The DC is a tight-knit community of over 1,000 globally-minded entrepreneurs. DCers meet monthly in up to 20 cities worldwide, gather virtually in hand-picked masterminds, and attend and create incredible in-person events. They also support each other in their entrepreneurial journey through case studies and sharing in our private forum. We thank them for lending their support and very often their stories to the TMBA podcast. You can hear more about the DC at tropicalmba.com slash DC podcast. And do you ever do any broadcasting when you were in college or anything? Do you do any university radio? No. Anything like that? Mm-mm. No. I had a tendency to idolize these people because I listened to them a lot of morning radio, especially. 
And then one day you're driving past the studio and you see your idol get in his 1985 VW Rabbit and drive away. And you're just like, wow, I thought that guy was a superstar. Yeah, for all I know, they were talking to like, you know, 700 people or whatever. But for me, I thought that was really cool too. And then all of a sudden, speaking of childhood idols, XM, Sirius and these satellite radio folks came along and people like Howard Stern signed up with them. And I'm kind of surprised that they missed the podcasting thing. You know, and when you look at both the companies themselves and many of the presenters and the performers that went on to these platforms, like I'm just still amazed that, you know, Howard didn't go direct to do his own thing with podcasting. Well, I think it's still the case, Dan, although these might be platforms that will be going away in the future, that that's where the primary source of major corporations' advertising budgets is still being placed. They got the money right, at least enough to pay the presenter. And that's what counts at the beginning probably not going to be sustainable. But back to Jordan's story a little bit. I think it was amazing that they were allowed to advertise their podcast on their show. It's just so cool. It is so cool. And I think what's even cooler is that they didn't think twice about it, it doesn't seem like. They just went for it and then assumed the consequences. And when there weren't consequences, it was all upside. Right. This is such like a cool pirate radio story. So let's get back to the conversation. So you leave XM at some point because you believe podcasting is really the future, although not very many people were doing it. Why did you have such strong belief in that? Why did you think it was going to work out there? We really didn't even know. Honestly, I thought eh, podcasting has been growing very, very slowly over the past, at this point, probably four years. We're doing okay. The business isn't that big. We got to learn how to promote on the web. We got to figure out how to generate a different audience. We got to da-da-da-da-da. So we started blogging and stuff like that, but we weren't doing a great job with it by any stretch. I mean, we were just like really just sort of learning about content and all that. And even now, if you look at our website and things like that, it, it works really well, but it's not like this super polished sales funnel. When I look at friends of mine who've been in business even shorter than I have, but have focused exclusively on digital marketing, they are just, you know, they're selling a thousand copies of their book every day. It's just madness how well they're doing. But for us, it was just like, look, we love recording the show. It's feeding us and paying the bills a little bit so far. Our audience is just crazy, crazy engaged. And I remember doing things like, oh, we should try to make more money this year so we can upgrade our equipment. And we had written this book about like using text messages to create social encounters, date better, all that stuff. And we're like, oh, yeah, we'll just make it like 30 bucks and we'll make it a pretty good product and we'll put it out there. And I think we sold something like $160,000 worth of this PDF. Our mind exploded. It was over the course of a couple of years, but I mean, bear in mind, we're not launching this. There were no affiliates. It was just like, hey, we, by the way, we have this book, you know, on the subject. It might be pretty cool. It's 30 bucks. And people would go, oh, okay, click, click, click. And we just, we weren't even sure if our software was telling us the right numbers because AJ, my business partner, we'd be at dinner and he'd be like, oh, I guess we made like three grand today. And I'm like, how? We didn't even do anything today. I mean, I, all I did was wake up and eat Chipotle and go to the gym and like we have $3,000 in our account. Those are the old days of kind of info marketing where it was new. And bear in mind, we had a huge audience listening to a podcast that trusted us because we hadn't sold them a thing in like four or five years and they were dying for it. So are people coming up to you, people that know how to market on the internet, are they coming up to you being like, hey, you guys are crazy. Like you have this huge audience. You need to monetize this audience. And you're sitting there basically saying like, hey, I'm a broadcaster. This is what I wake up for. Like, I don't really care about the money or what was your thought at the time? 
Yeah, there was a lot of that. It wasn't just like, I don't care about the money, but it was like, wow, this seems really complicated. And and friends of ours were like, look, you do this affiliate and then you sell their product and then they sell your product. And then you get an email list and da, 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 da. And it's really funny to look at those guys now because the majority of them, they're still doing that stuff, but like their products are garbage. They haven't innovated at all in a long time. They're always like, oh, I've got to buy ads on this. I got to buy ads on that. Oh, I got to do a deal with this person. It's like they're on this weird hamster wheel. Whereas I get to have fun conversations and my audience is going up like hockey stick growth and they're going, oh man, how do you do that? And we're saying, look, we sold this residential program. It's in LA. It's really great. And they're like, wow, who's going to buy that? And then suddenly they're like, wait a minute. And you know, they're emailing us. How did you start this? How come your programs are going for this? And I'm capping out at this price point. And I'm thinking to myself, because I'm not thinking of all of our clients as like a number on a spreadsheet or some sort of lame affiliate relationship. We're actually trying to help people and build a brand. So I know now I look at some of these guys and they're actually kind of irritated because they're like, my podcast has been around as long as yours and it's nowhere near the size. I guess, you know, you're really into it. And I'm like, no, you're just, you're a sales machine and people get sick of that crap. For a long time, the majority of the time this company has existed, anytime anyone has come up to us with some sort of, oh, I'll sell this and make money off that, we've just been like, not only are we going to pass on that, we don't even really necessarily want to talk to you anymore because if you're in that circle, you're tainted. you know. And that's how we felt about it for a really, really long time, which was bad for us because we didn't hire good marketers until very recently because we just assumed if you're making money on the internet doing this type of thing, there's a 90% chance you're shady. We don't want anything to do with it. And the people that we knew that were on the white hat side of things like you guys who were making money and doing it right, you were busy with your own business. So it was kind of like, ah, we need to learn that stuff ourselves, but we're focused on client service and broadcasting. We really need to partner with somebody, but we don't want to partner with anybody because they're all scammers. Like we had this weird catch 22. Well, I think you figured out what a lot of people in your position figure out, which is, you know, the customer comes first and then the best product to sell your customer is your product, basically, because you can control it. You can control the experience and you can also treat your customers the way that you feel like is the best way to treat them. You know, and once you start throwing these affiliate deals and all these other products in front of them, you can't control what they're seeing or getting or the experience that they're having. So, you know, a lot of people I think were stuck or are stuck basically before your inflection point, because it seems like you had a bit of an inflection point when you started to figure out, hey, you know, we have this audience base. We've been really good. We haven't tried to sell them for four or five years. I think we want to start making some revenue, not because I'm necessarily selfish about making money, but because I feel like we can help them further than just offering them this show. So, you know, what do you say to those people that are kind of stuck in the middle of podcasting? Like they have several thousand listeners every week. Do they need to just develop their own products is that the next course of action? You know, you guys have a lot of ads on your site these days. I mean, you joined, I think, Podcast One. That seems like an interesting way to maybe earn some money. So what do you say to these people that are kind of stuck in the middle? They have decent audiences that trust them, and then they also want to make a living at this. Yeah, I think you should only broadcast if it's a labor of love and you don't care if anybody listens. And I'll tell you why. It's not that nobody listens to podcasts. We know that's not true. It's not only that there's a lot of competition in podcasting and in iTunes, which is true. The problem is that this is, and I'm trying not to get all woo-woo and weird here, but this is almost like an art form. And not only is it an art form, but it's a performance. And not only is it a performance subject to all the whims of everything else that performances are subject to, but you're also subject to the same constraints as artists and any singer or actor is going to have this too, right? Oh, your latest content sucked. You're not popular anymore. Oh, somebody else came out with something in your niche and they're 
are more popular than you or they did something unique and cool and now they get the attention. Sorry, Charlie, you're screwed. And it took us years and years. I mean, this is our 10th year of broadcasting and I am still working on specific skill sets. I'm still learning different things about broadcasting and performance and interviewing. Not only that, but once I hit a certain point where, let's say in five years from now, 10 years from now, I'm like, I've mastered interviewing. I'm the best interviewer in the world. I can't then hire somebody else and have them do it. You can't outsource it, which means it's really hard to scale. It's not a blog. You can hire a thousand writers for a blog. If you want content posted every hour on the hour, hire enough writers and that'll happen. Podcasting, it's your voice. It's your brand. Well, how do you feel about that, though? Because, I mean, a lot of businesses that I've started and that I've seen people start, when I start with myself, it's generally good for the brand because I, I feel like I can sell it, I can control it, I can be good at it. But then you get to be in a certain position where you might be stuck because now it's the Jordan show. And so what happens now when Jordan wants to go do something else? Yeah, you're out of luck. That's why I don't recommend podcasting for people trying to brand or start new businesses because what you're doing is you're creating a job for yourself. You're not, oh, I'm going to start this and then it's going to scale and then dot, dot, dot. No, you're a broadcaster. You can't outsource it. You can't figure out a way around it. You can scale it back, but you can't quit. No, you've made a job for yourself. So you better damn well hope you love that job and you won't know until year number three, when you go, if I have to interview another so-and-so, I'm going to hang myself from the nearest tree. Or you go, I can't believe I haven't done more of this. And so for me, doing a show once a week, it was okay. And then it went to like once every two weeks. And then we got lazy and it came out once every now and then when I had something to say. Now it's four times a week because I love it, not because that's the optimal number of content pieces in my content marketing strategy, blah, blah, blah. And you can tell the people that are doing a podcast and they're like, every day I interview somebody for eight minutes and I ask them about software and books. And it's like, that's a very commoditized show that anybody can do and that a lot of people are doing. You have to bring something unique, polished, and super interesting and more interesting than the next click or you're screwed. And so it's not recommended. You're swimming with sharks when you try to join the top ranks of iTunes. How did you learn to love it or why do you love it? I love having conversations. I'm interested in people. I love the fact that I'm able to open up somebody else's content create connections for them that they hadn't thought of between their work, myself and the audience and create kind of this weird symbiotic product with these amazing thought leaders. It's cool to talk to like Tony Hawk and he's talking about his businesses and branding and skating and stuff like that with us. And I'm relating it to what I know the AOC family, Art of Charm family wants to hear and is going to benefit from. And then the next day I'm doing that same thing with General McChrystal, who's coming at a very different set of problems with a very different skill set gained through a very different experience. And I'm able to then relate that to the audience. And that's really cool. And so to be surrounded by that all the time is really, really cool and amazing. And you get this cool inside look at all these amazing people celebrities and authors and thought leaders and high performers, and you get to be around them all the time and see how they operate and get them to tell you things they probably haven't told anybody because of the virtue of the fact that you're sitting in the right chair. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, you're talking to the general one day and then you're talking to Tony Hawk the next day. You know, what are some of the things that you've learned that help you to assimilate with both of those guys and get the kind of information that you feel like your listeners want to hear from them. You know, because they're two very different people. They come from two very different backgrounds. So I don't know if this is the word that you would use, but how do you chameleon yourself in a way that 
both of these guys trust you? That's a really good set of questions that kind of goes to the heart of what we teach at The Art of Charm, which is persuasion, influence, body language, rapport, getting people to know, like, and trust you. So the meta of this is that the skills I use on the show to generate the conversations with the guests are the same skills that, or similar set of skills, short of the technical broadcasting stuff, that you would get if you came through a workshop that we teach. And, and that's an accident. We did not plan that as some sort of clever, look, by demonstrating my skills on the show, we demonstrate the skills you'll learn at boot camp. Like that was not something that we had thought of in the beginning. It happened to be that mastering, and I put that in air quotes because I say the process of mastering soft skills happened to make me better at creating conversations with interesting people, which also helped me create a network of interesting people to have interesting conversations with, which happens to dovetail really well with people trying to generate professional connections, personal connections, love relationships, better familial relationships, getting promotions at work. The skills are 99% the same. And so the fact is we're able to practice what we preach 24-7 on the show. It's just that instead of talking about, well, here's episode number 7,000 that has the exact same set of subjects, I can go, look, we're not talking about body language directly today, but I'm going to talk about how General McChrystal uses body language when he's leading a bunch of special forces troops and he's 120 pounds and they're 220 pounds and 20 years younger than him. How is he generating the respect outside of just having his rank. And he's like, well, you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E. And there's practical skills delivered to an audience of people that are used to then learning practical skills from me, learning practical skills from the guest, and then go, I want more of this. Oh, look what we have here, a live program in LA that teaches practical skills. So it accidentally became like the best marketing vehicle ever for the product that we had created so long ago and continues to evolve. I think Dan, my business partner, would call that like a self-licking ice cream cone. I love that. Just goes in a circle. I want to just reiterate that it was completely accidental that this happened. This was not a plan. If we had planned it better from the beginning, I think things would be different, but maybe not even as good as they are now. I think the accidental journey that we had, I'd love to say, I'd never change a thing. That's complete baloney. There are so many things I would change. However, the fact that we ended up where we are now is great. I just think I probably would have screwed it up had I tried to consciously create where I am now years ago. I think that would not have worked. What would you have changed about the journey? You see, here's an interesting dilemma, right? When we first started the show, I didn't really look at my download numbers for years. I mean, I would look at every 90 days, I'd go, hey, can we figure out how to log into GoDaddy or whatever our server was and look at how many MP3s got downloaded over a 30-day period? That's roughly how many downloads we have. Totally inaccurate, totally not fact-checked, you know, reality-checked. Podcast host now, you log into Libsyn, and it's like correcting for IPs that switch rapidly like you do on mobile phones and blah, blah, blah. Duplicate downloads from the same thing that are errors. They correct for all this. And then you look at the way that we were treating our numbers, which was, eh, okay, I guess people are still listening. That was bad because we didn't think we should test what the audience wants. We should figure out how to get more email squeezes. We got to figure out which shows have the most popular content and drive the most traffic to the site. We didn't look at any of that because it was a hobby. We were making money. We maybe even were making a living off of it, but we didn't really think like this is something we need to test. 
But on the upside, the exact same thing. We didn't look at our numbers. It was a hobby, not a business. So we did the show for four or five years, not caring if anyone listened, working on the craft, not working on, oh, well, this BuzzFeedy type piece of content drove a lot of traffic. Let's make the whole show that. It was just do what I want and create a skill set that then later translated into something that I love. The problem is if we had looked at those numbers before, sure, the show might have ended up totally different. We might have ended up with the BuzzFeed of podcasts, you know, the lowest common denominator is what I mean by that. However, we might also have just freaking quit because if you do a show and now we see that most podcasts like 98% never make it past episode six or something like that. They call it pod fading. The reason is because they're looking at shows like mine, shows like yours, shows like you see from the guys that are marketing podcasting courses and they're going, I'm going to have 30,000 downloads per episode and that's going to be $50,000 a month in revenue and I can pay my whole team and I'll still have $35,000 in profit. Oh my God, I'm going to be rich. And then three episodes later, they went from their mom and their friends downloading it to like their mom and their friends lying about downloading it to nobody downloading it. And then they go, this sucks and it's hard. I'm done. And I might have done the exact same thing if I was really turning this into a business instead of a hobby. So we end up with this weird middle ground where, man, I'd wish I'd treated this like a business earlier, but damn, I'm glad I didn't treat this like a business earlier. Does that make sense? Well, a lot of times, you know, artists sit around and they talk about how to make money and then people that are making money talk about how to create art, right? So there is this interesting intersection that I think you're at. There's an intersection of art and commerce, you know? And I think one of the ways that you've figured out how to do it is by bringing on, you know, some of these advertisers. Obviously, you have your own product. Tell us a little bit about how you cut these deals with these advertisers. I touched on this earlier, but Podcast One is a group of other podcasts, right? And so tell us how that works. Yeah, the way that Podcast One works, they sell ads for us. It's a network. We run commercials on other shows in the network. We run commercials for their shows. So it's, the idea is it generates more traffic for the collective whole, and then they have an ad sales team and a technical team and a studio and things like that. So we do a lot of that in-house because we kind of came up indie. But yeah, a lot of the people that we're working with, I mean, they're working with Brandy Glanville and Shaq and Chris Jericho and Steve Austin. They've got their own shows there. They bring in their own audience, and then ideally the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the other thing is they sell ads. So I don't have to have an ad salesperson who's putting out quotes and proposals and blah, blah, blah. They can sell ads for the whole network and get really big buys together and service us all in a really good way there. So it, it's great for people who don't want to have an entire back office for their show, but already have an audience. And so what size show would you say is appropriate for that? It depends. If you need their technical help and their hosting and their editing and their blah, 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 then you need to have around 25, 30,000, maybe 15 on the low end if you've got some potential people already that you know you can get them to download your show. If you're a celebrity and you come up with a mega audience, you can ask for whatever the heck you want because that's what they're looking for in numbers. But if you're just starting off, you better be doing pretty much everything in house. I know some smaller shows that are on Podcast One through let's say me giving them a good word and saying, look, they just need more eyeballs. And also they edit their own show and they correct their own show and they upload a finished product. So it's kind of a function of how much work does the network have to do versus how much are they going to earn from selling ads and the number of people that are listening to your show? And is that number going to go up? And that's what they're looking for. It seems like the value might be at that point that they can A, sell advertisements on your show so you don't have to broker those deals and then B, also get you more eyes to your show or in this case, ears actually. Yes, 
Ideally, yeah, earballs is what I call it. Get more earballs on the show. <laughs> and that becomes problematic because, of course, you're still at the whim of the artist. So if they're like, hey, so-and-so lame comedian that you totally hate has his own show, would you interview them? And I'm like, no, I don't want Pauly Shore on my show. He's not my kind of guy. I'll pass. So you still have that wall to hit. So you can't just come in and go, oh, well, I'm a real housewife of the OC, so you have to have me on your show. Not going to happen. So there's a lot of like kind of bureaucratic back and forth that happens there as well. And of course, whenever you work with actual celebrities, which are many of them on Podcast One, you end up with all kinds of personalities in the mix and you end up with all kinds of, you know, the assistant to the assistant to the assistant says that Shaq will only give you 15 minutes. And I'm like, can somebody call him and get rid of all this red tape BS for me? So it has its ups and downs. I recommend networks for people not when they're first starting out. In fact, I think people overthink this a lot. I think they try to build their audience in iTunes, which is what we did, which I do not recommend. I think you need to bring an audience to iTunes, but whether that's from YouTube or your email list or your blog, and it's a great way to service other clients, but it's a terrible way to be discovered. So if you're leaning on starting your own show to boost your business, you better have a business to boost. Do not count on this as your primary vector. You will regret it because I haven't, but I, again, was willing to do this for half a decade, even though I didn't know if anybody was listening. Do you still think or did you ever think that word of mouth is the best way to hear about another podcast at this point? Yeah, it's it's still one of the best ways to hear about other shows. So, and it's one of the only ways that you can hear about other shows. And to do that, you have to have really, really good content. So if you're trying to play the numbers game, I do a show every week with a different person starting a business. You're going to run into problems because unless what you're doing is unique, which that idea is not you're going to run into people going, oh, yeah, I've heard shows like that. I'm good. Or I don't care. Or uh, I listened for two weeks and now I'm sick of it. That's a big problem. The only thing that's harder than getting new listeners for a show is keeping them. And so what do you guys do to keep them? We try to come up with really novel shows that are not just unique in their content. They're not just unique in their format, of course. We'll go really deep. I mean, I spend 10 hours preparing for a show. I'll read the whole book that the author wrote. I will watch all of their talks. I will look at the science behind the things that they're claiming. I will take their ideas and plug them into ideas from other scientists that have been on the show before. And I will discuss all of that with them. And I take copious amounts of notes and things like that. So nobody's really able, going back to the original sort of competitive advantage thing we talked about in the very beginning of the show, nobody's really to outwork us. It's, it's very, very rare to find a show that's going to outwork me and my team at The Art of Charm. The people that might be willing to outwork us have corporate budgets. They do different formats of shows, right? They're working on a totally different type of business at ESPN or something like that. And, and that's fine. There's room for us in that market. It's very hard to copy because not only have we been doing it for 10 years, but the, even just the straight amount of hours that goes into each program is big enough where even if you came in with all the talent in the world, you probably still wouldn't be able to beat our final product because of the amount of work that goes into each one. Jordan, final question for you. Because you're a pioneer in the space, and I think you you saw something that a lot of people didn't see, you know, podcasting has been around now for for you 10 years. What is the future? What do you see as the future? Will this be around another 20 years? Yeah, it will be in some format or another. Whether or not we have to go into iTunes and this, the app, and search for this is, remains to be seen. And I hope it does not end up being still so hard to discover like it is. I think we're going to see other aggregators like Spotify, who's already in the game. Our show is in Spotify. Most shows are not because they're trying to figure out how to import different shows into Spotify and, and broadcast those out. To, I think right now it's like only in the mobile app and only to US-based clients. And da -da -da. That's going to roll out for at least the top type of shows in iTunes, hopefully, 
across all the apps. You got TuneIn Radio that's in cars. And, and as soon as every car has internet connection, which right now it's like early adopters, Teslas, stuff like that, they have 4G in the car. But in five years or less, probably more like three, you'll be able to find a car without internet like you're able to find a car with a tape deck. Right. Right. It's going to be like, how the hell? Because even now you're looking at people who have an aux cable and they're using <laughs> digital radio essentially on their phone. Isn't that crazy? You still can't download a podcast from your car. Yeah, unless you have a Tesla or something like that, and you can stream it on TuneIn. So that's going to become so ubiquitous that along with self-driving cars, you're going to be listening to stuff in your car. You're going to be watching stuff in your car. You're going to be hanging out, listening to stuff at the gym like you normally are, but you're going to be able to find it so much more easily. People of my generation, I'm 37 and stuff like that, a lot of times we're used to listening to music all the time because that's all that was on the freaking radio when we were growing up. But now talk is going to be cool again. It already is. It's, it's not going be. It already is going to be very much participatory, interactive. Social media is going to play its part in this. You're going to see a lot more people interacting with podcasts in general. And there's so many channels out there. I mean that in the figurative sense, channels out there for people to tune into that your content's going to have to stand on its own, but it's going to be absolutely everywhere. You'll start a show in your car. When you get to the gym, it will jump over figuratively to your phone right where you left off if, if it's not already doing that because you're bringing your phone in with you and you have to use it in the car. And then you're going to go home and it's going to, as soon as you walk in the door, your wireless Sonos speakers or whatever are going to pick up that same show. It's going to show that you're listening to that on social media and people are going to be interacting with you while you're listening who are listening to the exact same thing. It's only a matter of time. So Dan, I know you don't do a lot of driving, but you do have a car. <laughs> I have a van. <laughs> yeah, what do you think about this idea? I mean, just recently with systems like Apple CarPlay and things like that, is it possible for you to have an emulator? So basically what that means is your phone screen is in your car's screen, and that's a way to listen to podcasts. But until recently, it hasn't really been an easy possibility to listen to podcasts in your car yet. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, this is great opportunity. Like so many more people are going to be listening to podcasts once they figure that out. And I don't really know if that's the case, you know? Like you said, I mean, maybe people never need to go to the intermediary of the car. They just prefer to go right through their handset. Or in five years, it's going to be an implanted headset that just automatically can detect that I'm on my morning drive and what <laughs> radio show I want to hear. I don't know. I think the real thing here is the advertising platforms. That's what's interesting, right? Because there's not really a way that Coca-Cola can come and dump their money into podcasting right now. You know, we have a mutual friend who full-time builds systems so Fortune 500 companies can deploy advertising dollars. And they do that in the search space. There's not really an analog to that in podcasting yet. You know, it's all this kind of scaled down. We've been working on selling advertising on this show lately. It's like this bespoke thing where you're offering, you know, set up a landing page and we'll send people there and, you know, it'll be this mutual win-win. And like, yeah, Coca-Cola can't roll like that. And so I really think that that's an interesting opportunity in the podcast space. And when that does happen, when you can say advertise across a broad range of podcasts and get clear analytics on where your dollars are going and what they're doing for your brand, that I think is going to be a big moment for podcasting. I, I don't know what's required, whether it's possible or what, but I think that there's a lot of attention out there that's not being monetized. It's still pirate radio, man. We're still in our basements with our tinfoil hats and our headsets and sharing our stories, you know? I don't think podcasting hasn't really gone mainstream yet. Yeah, it's unbelievable, you know? 
years later too that these platforms haven't really evolved either you know like just say this like itunes is the biggest piece of crap oh no now you're that the guy. biggest piece of crap <laughs> so it's to say it's not surprising to me that these advertisers haven't figured out a way to really get in the podcasting game is because the delivery platforms aren't accommodating so that's true this is all a big software problem the other thing though that i'll say for me, it's all about, and it has been for many years with radio, word of mouth. So the way that I discover new podcasts and new radio shows is from somebody that I trust saying, hey, you should probably take a listen to this. It's one of my favorite shows right now. And that's, I think, a little bit different than the way that television works because it's so easy for you to kind of surf through the television. Yeah, and YouTube is a similar. It's a different audience. Adam Carolla, is, he's a famous podcaster. He's talked a lot about this on his show that he feels like the audience is more connected, they're higher quality. And I think we've seen that when we throw events and things like that, people are connected in a way, they're with you in a way that if you're just watching someone, you're kind of judging them and, you know, shopping them and stuff. Whereas with the podcast, you're, yeah, you're really connected to the people that you listen to. And I still think it's extremely powerful for business owners. And one thing I can share with the audience is after the Splitly episode aired, didn't even think of this, but how many emails do we get with people saying, I want to do this for my business? Because if you can tell the story of your business, that's an extraordinarily powerful thing. And I think doing it in a video medium is really, really costly and difficult. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they see that opportunity in podcasting. It's like, what if I could do like a serial podcast about my company? Well, I think that's a great idea. And I think just going back to your comment about Adam Carolla and why people connect so well with podcasts or audio presenters is because a lot of the times in video, people are acting. And I think most of the time you'll hear on audio programs, people, it's a lot easier to be yourself because there's one dimension, you know, there's your voice. No one can see me right now sitting on the couch. I'm definitely not acting. I've never heard anybody say that before. I guess I assume that it would be just as easy to bullshit on a podcast as it would be on a YouTube video, but maybe not. I do kind of feel like on YouTube, there's a lot of bullshit. I could see it in people's eyes when they're bullshitting, you know? <laughs> you got to be tight with that camera. You got to have some experience. You got to know where to look. But you can still put on your radio voice on the pod. You got to roll out the radio voice from time to time. I don't you know? know, man. I think it feels disingenuous <laughs> when, when people meet me on the street. I mean, I think that's one of the advantages, though. A guy like Adam Carolla, I've met him in person. He talks basically the same way that he does on the podcast. And I think there's some congruency there that makes sense to me. Humble brag. Yeah, last time I talked to Adam, lined up perfectly no. with this podcast. Nice, man. No, it's not I'm, like that. I'm impressed. Actually, <laughs> we're all impressed. <laughs> actually, there was some inconsistencies. He was chewing gum. He doesn't like people that chew gum, he says on his podcast. So huh. I thought, this guy's a phony. Phony. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, thanks to Jordan. I think it's cool just to see their hustle. Like, just I love that story of like the pure hustle, the work ethic there. And also this opportunity, you know, like we did a documentary a few weeks ago where you're sharing your stories. It's actually quite difficult to do. You know, we were getting all this feedback of how we can do it better in the future. It's intensive in terms of skill and time. And we have a huge learning curve here, but you don't need to do that, you know? And that's what I love about podcasting. You can flip on the mic after your day is done and just share your story. And that is going to get potential clients, I think the right ones, or just potential audience members interested in your story. And so if you love it, if you love the radio, the opportunities better than it ever was. This week's episode will be at tropicalmba.com forward slash Jordan Harbinger. That is Jordan and then H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. That's a good radio voice. 
Thanks, Dan. Appreciate <laughs> that. I'll see you next Thursday morning, Ian. <laughs> Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.